from KQED. This is Queued Up, Storytelling with Heart. I'm John Sepulveda. This is Chapter 5 of The Trials of Marvin Much. Marvin Much was convicted for the murder of 13-year-old Cassie Riley in 1975. And after 20 years in prison, Marvin believed he'd never get out. But in the late 90s, another seemingly unrelated case would shine new light on his conviction and expose other suspects. But would it be enough to win Marvin's freedom? Here's KQED reporter Alex Emsley. In the winter of 1997, the body of a 22-year-old woman was found on the side of a rural California highway. That would lead police to a couple suspected of abduction, sexual assault, and murder. For the past nine weeks, sexual predators James DeVeggio and Michelle Machad, fueled by methamphetamine, have been stalking and raping victims at random. The true crime television series Wicked Attraction profiled the horrific case in 2008. The couple known as Froggy and Mickey snatched and sexually assaulted at least half a dozen young women over the course of three months. They strangled their last victim, Vanessa Lee Sampson, to death and were arrested the next day. In May of 2002, a jury finds both James DeVeggio and Michelle Michaud guilty of the first-degree murder of Vanessa Sampson. They are sentenced to death. Investigative reporter turned true crime author Carlton Smith started digging into DeVeggio's past. Authorities now wonder how many more victims may be out there. Smith appeared on Wicked Attraction a few years before his death in 2011. James Anthony DeVeggio was born in 1960 in San Francisco, California. He had a very unhappy upbringing. His mother was the dominant personality in his household. He was involved in various sex, uh, sex crimes, even as a, as a juvenile. He had many difficulties, psychological difficulty, a lot of baggage, a lot of rage, a lot of anger at women, especially. Smith had a theory about what happened to Cassie Riley in 1974, that when James DeVeggio was 14 years old and living in Union City, Cassie Riley could have been his first victim and that Marvin Much is innocent. This is the trials of Marvin Much. Is it possible that he's not guilty? That this is a mistake? Um, I believe he was guilty. And I, there's no doubt in my mind. I have never seen a case go down where there was so little evidence. That you could convict somebody and not have evidence. We don't always get it right. The justice system doesn't always get it right. This man's whole life has been stolen by the state of California. Just to ask it straight out, I mean, do you believe this man killed a 13-year-old girl in 1974? I do, because if I didn't, then my position would be that he should be released and we should look into the conviction. Did you kill Cassie Riley? I did not kill Cassie Riley. Chapter 5, Hope. Had the police gone after the wrong man? True crime writer Carlton Smith was convinced they had. When justice miscarries, as it likely did in Marvin Much's case, it leaves the guilty not only unpunished, but unapprehended, free to commit still more violence. That's an excerpt from Carlton Smith's book, Hunting Evil, published after Marvin had already served 25 years in prison. There were numerous potential clues that might have led Union City police in a far different direction had they chosen to follow them. And it is regrettable indeed that many of them led in the direction of Jimmy DeVeggio. Carlton Smith, 
Hunting Evil, 2000. The book's conclusions that DeVeggio likely killed Cassie Riley are debatable, but Smith's investigation helped uncover other facts about the case that are not. Like this, Union City detectives strongly suspected more than one of Cassie's classmates of killing her, suspicions they abandoned to focus on Marvin, suspicions that were never disclosed to his defense. The obligation really was on the prosecution. If evidence might be exonerating or raise doubts on credibility, they have an obligation to provide it to the defense. And many cases have been reversed later on when it's turned out that they have not provided that. That's Marvin's defense attorney, James McWilliams. Carlton Smith got in touch with him while he was researching his book. He needed files for Marvin. Marvin had asked to review his prison record before and always got one box. This time was different. To my amazement, they brought five central files and four of the files contained police reports and investigative notes and lab reports and pictures and everything. The whole case was there. I made copies of everything and I sent them to the attorneys. And my public defender said he hadn't seen 70% of that stuff at trial. In that case file, other possible suspects in the murder of Cassie Riley. One Smith ignored because they didn't fit with the story he wanted to tell. Take one of Cassie's classmates, whose real name I'm not going to use because we couldn't find him. We'll call him Roy. He was 15 years old and had been staying with his aunt in Union City for a few months. Four days after Cassie Riley was killed, his aunt brought him to the police station. She had concerns. The reason he had come to stay with her in the first place? He had allegedly tried to rape his 11-year-old niece in Detroit. Since he'd moved, there'd been other troubling things too. He got angry and pulled the head off a pet parakeet. He strangled the family cat to death. When Union City Police interviewed Roy, he couldn't keep his story straight. Not about where he was the evening Cassie Riley was killed. Not about if he knew her. He's quoted in the case notes. Okay, okay, so I knew her. I liked her. I even wrote about her in a letter I have at home. I said that she was good looking. That I would like to call her sometime. That I'd like her to be my girl and things like that. Union City Police interview notes, 1974. And then there's the footprints. The ones we keep coming back to the ones found on the creek bank near Cassie Riley's body. I said, well, you don't have my footprints because I wasn't there. It was clear that the victim made some of the print impressions and overlaying those impressions was another person's shoe print in the mud. And those prints were definitely not made by Marvin Much, made by a third person who had a different size foot a different style of shoe. The footprints were of Converse sneakers, and Marvin didn't own Converse sneakers. He only owned a pair of boots. Whoever was wearing them tennis shoes was there at the time the victim was alive, and it was obviously a struggle. The footprints overlapping Cassie's were from size nine and a half Converse All-Stars. The case notes that Marvin's defense never saw say an officer found a pair of size nine and a half Converse sneakers in Roy's school locker the right style of shoe, the right size. But police, citing a lack of evidence, let Roy go. This is the last note about him in the Cassie Riley case file. It is this officer's opinion that if 
is not responsible for this homicide. He's certainly capable of a homicide of this nature and is in desperate need of psychiatric assistance. Union City Police Interview Notes, 1974. There were other suspects, too. The boy Cassie was seen slapping in the face days before she was killed. Still more classmates. And James DeVeggio, the subject of Carlton Smith's book. Did James himself kill Cassie? Only James knows that for sure at this late date. That Marvin did not seems incontrovertible, even from the evidence that was presented against him so long ago. Evidence that was never made known to James's haunted sister, Jody, who could still recall, so many years later, the brand of sneaker worn those days by her brother in Union City. Yes, Converse All-Stars. Carlton Smith, Hunting Evil, 2000. Smith had another reason to focus on DeVeggio. DeVeggio and Cassie Riley had allegedly been involved. Here's the one note on him in the police case file. DeVeggio states that approximately six months ago, he was involved in a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship with victim for approximately one or two weeks. During that time, there was no sexual intercourse or attempts at same on his part. Not that he did not seriously consider same, rather he did not feel victim would have been receptive to same and he was afraid to initiate any action regarding same. DeVeggio has no knowledge of the case, wears size 11 tennis shoes of a variety not consistent with evidence in this case, and since severance of the relationship, mutual, characterizes their relationship as indifferent, as opposed to hostile. Union City Police Interview Notes, 1974. Marvin's defense attorney, James McWilliams, wanted to check out the DeVeggio story and he managed to set up a meeting with him on death row. Perhaps DeVaggio, now facing the death penalty, might say, okay, Mr. McWilliams, I'm prepared to acknowledge it at this point. What did he say to you? He denied everything, so he provided no information that was helpful. The Alameda County District Attorney's Office also followed up on Hunting Evil's theory about James DeVeggio. Our office did look into whether the other individual that was on trial could have been responsible for the murder and determined that based on the facts we had, they were not, or we would have prosecuted them and let Mr. Mudge go. That's Assistant District Attorney Jill Klinge. It was a fictional book. It was more of what I'd call a fictionalization of a very sensational trial that we had going on. Still, Marvin thought those long-lost case files provided, for the first time, real evidence that he was wrongfully convicted. What I said when I came into prison and when I first started going to the board, what I said was the truth. The case files didn't help Marvin get out of prison. He was still stuck inside San Quentin. But across the bay from the prison gates, others were starting to take an interest. Attorney Susan Ruttberg ran a small innocence project with a group of students at Golden Gate University in San Francisco. They were a local chapter of the national group known for clearing people through DNA evidence. We learned the facts of his case and the complex web of reasons why he was still in prison and why he had been denied parole. And we decided to investigate the case to see if there was any DNA. 
But there was no DNA. There was, this was not a DNA case. This was a circumstantial evidence case. There was, there was nothing. Heather Ledgerwood was one of the Innocence Project law students. She's now an attorney. You no, know, there was no rape. There was no you know, physical evidence that was left behind that could show one way or another that it was him or not. And, and so there wasn't a way to prove his innocence. So because of all that, we decided we would put our energy into trying to get him out through the parole process rather than in trying to prove innocence in a case where we couldn't find any DNA or any recanting witnesses. Like the star witness, Marvin's sister, Valerie. Valerie never believed her brother was guilty of murder, even though her testimony was used against him. They played on my need to have a family, my need to be normal, or at least appear normal. She says she was living with the district attorney's investigator before she testified, and she was coached. And it was all just a big lie, a big game, like playing chess. Just a big game. Who's going to win? And they were determined that they would win. That sounds like it might be a big deal, but legally, it wasn't enough. Even Valerie's statement now about how she was coerced didn't necessarily, there wasn't an avenue to present that to a court. Rutberg and Ledgerwood, along with other students, worked on the case for two years. In January 2006, they went to Marvin's parole hearing, armed with three dozen letters of support. He was the go-to person that the guards went to, the correctional officers went to, when there was something brewing and they needed a voice of reason from one of the men inside. He helped mediate grievances. He helped quell racial problems. He was an amazing person, an amazing leader within prison. Ruttberg also hoped the Innocence Project's name would carry some weight. I had written a letter in which I said that I was the head of this innocence project, that we believed he was innocent, but that not every case comes up with magic bullet DNA. So in this case, we felt we couldn't prove it, but we were donating our services for free to represent him at this hearing. And I had hoped that that would in some way be persuasive to the parole commissioners. In 2006, after 31 years, Marvin, was found suitable for parole. I cried, I was shaken by the whole experience. It was amazing and gratifying and wonderful and we were so happy for Marvin. And actually it was kind of an astounding legal victory because very few people known as lifers had ever been granted parole from San Quentin. but there is a peculiarity in California's parole system. California's life-term parole process is a very political process. The governor gets the final say in parole for convicted murderers. California is one of just three states that do that. Heidi Rummel is a University of Southern California law professor who specializes in parole. There's only political downside to the governor, an elected official. Um, you know, he has to worry about that one Willie Horton. Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes, Dukakis on crime. That's a presidential campaign ad from 1988. Dukakis lost the election due in part to that ad. 
Horton was an ugly guy, and he looked like everybody's stereotype of a black thug. I can't believe when they made those ads, they didn't know what they were doing, raising racial fears. Political scientists now use this as a verb, like candidates talk about not wanting to be Willie Hortonized. In the wake of that race, every Democratic politician I knew was tripping over themselves to prove they were tough on crime. The new reality, that there's political costs for releasing prisoners, rippled across the country. It created something called the Willie Horton effect. Why let out 600 or 1,000 people who are going to do good in the world when you risk that one of them might be the reason you don't get reelected? As the first couple months went by, it was like, well, you know, I'll believe it when it happens. This third and fourth month, things started happening where they were calling you in and they were having you fill out your paperwork and sign it and have your dress out sent in and clothes you're going to wear home. And By the time uh, the last few weeks came around, I really believed I was leaving and uh, I gave away all my stuff. Uh, these little things are important in there but out here. I wasn't going to walk out of the prison with anything. It got down to the last day, and I said, well, this is it. I'm out of here. But that didn't happen. Then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger reversed the parole board's decision. He noted Marvin's juvenile history, discipline on his prison record, and the fact that a 13-year-old girl had been murdered. The governor's reason had to do with the heinousness of the original crime, which had nothing to do whatsoever with Marvin's rehabilitation and his who he was at that time. Everything was hope, and then a hope that was dashed, and then another hope. So he was heartbroken, crushed, and so were we. And then a hope that was dashed. There are people who get pulled into the black hole of this justice system that we got going in California, and it does just what black holes do, that tears your life to bits. It eviscerates you. It makes you feel like you're hollow. You're a fool at the end of it, you know, to even believe. Marvin's life had become entwined with California's criminal justice system. Before he'd ever be free, that system would have to change. And he'd need the help of the woman who was about to change it as well as the help of some unlikely allies, the prosecutor who convicted him, and Cassie Riley's family. Who's going to stand up for Cassie and who's going to do the right thing? If no one ever leaves prison on parolable life terms, if the release rate of lifers is less than 1%, we have essentially converted those sentences into life without parole sentences. The parole board it's one of the most lawless bodies I know of within the world of criminal law. Long-term incarcerated people started looking at parole like Christians look at heaven. They just have to have faith it's there. When parole is a viable possibility, the behavior of inmates change. I think what we're finding is that there happens to be this other human element, which is if you give people hope, um, they, will, they will act accordingly. That's next time on The Trials of Marvin Much. The Trials of Marvin Much was reported by Alex Emsley and Adam Grossberg. It's also a documentary film. 
can go see it at thetrialsofmarvinmuch.org. If you're curious about this story and our investigation and you want to learn more, you can find documents related to the case, photos, court transcripts, and other extras on the website. The Trials of Marvin Much was edited by Sanja Dirks. Senior editors are David Weir and Julia McAvoy. Executive producers of Cued Up are Ethan Lindsay and Holly Kernan. I'm John Sepulveda, and you can subscribe to Cued Up wherever you get your podcasts.